your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. And this morning we are joined by Lynn Devenu and Marlene jansen Labert. Today we're gonna to talk about the challenges of women and more diversity in the voices of leadership. So let's talk a little bit about how women aspire and how they define leadership. Well, one of the most interesting things we found in our work together was that one of the most important things to do with aspiring to be a leader is to think being a leader is something you'd ever want to be. And for many little girls, when they look at what people who call themselves leaders are like, that's not what they think they want to be when they grow up. And so even little girls who lead often don't call themselves leaders. So it makes sense to define how are you talking about leadership. You're not talking formal roles necessarily. Not necessarily. It's okay. being able to influence groups of people going in a certain direction. As kids, that's typically play activities. Who's the one that organizes the group playing certain activities? Both Marlene and I and the rest of the women we do research with, with on women's leader identity found that early in our childhood, we were organizing the neighborhoods or organizing our mm -hmm. group of friends. Mm -hmm for reasons could be as simple as mine, which was I was the oldest kid in the neighborhood, come home from school and whatever, like if we did a kid, had a circus in kindergarten, I'd come back and the neighborhood would do a circus in the yard. Those kinds of things from early in childhood, and Marlene has lots of stories too. Yes, lots. But some of the research that we found on aspirations, three main kind of areas is what does in our culture it mean to be a leader? What does the model of leadership actually look like? And typically, we think of leaders as being agentic, or the leaders are the ones that take action. And so we have what we call second-generation biases and deep structures around our women seen as being agentic, our women seen as taking action versus we are expected to be communal. We're expected to be relational. And so those two don't seem to really mesh the gender expectations and uh, leadership. There's a little bit of a bias in terms of women or gender and what it means to be a leader. We also have, you know, can we do it? If we look at aspirations for leadership, it's what's in the culture. And then do I fit that picture? Can I do that? And, and then we take a look at the costs and benefits of leadership. There are different costs and benefits to leadership for women than there are for men. So say more about that. We had some interesting conversations over the course of this series talking about highly ethical people often think that leadership is something kind of painful, that you're causing people to do things that will be unpleasant. You'll have to fire people and things like that. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about the costs of leadership, I wonder if you're talking trade-offs or also personal costs. We were more talking the personal costs. We were thinking of things like not being able to be a mom or not being able to be the kind of mom you think you want to. I say I was married to IBM until I was 50, and I was single. That's not necessarily the norm anymore, but it was pretty normal at that stage. So the costs and benefits, you know, some of what we talk, it is uh, personal, but it's also the role congruency within a job. So if you take a look at you're the leader, there are status benefits for men in terms of being leadership. For women, there's also costs in terms of their status as a woman, their collegiality with other women, with other men. So there are some differences in the research that you take a look at. You know, what are the costs uh, within your work area? Women still are the typically the homemaker, the family, keeping the family together, whether that's your parents. You might be single, but everybody is a child. 
the caregiving of older people is typically false to the females in the family, the daughters in the families. To say just because someone's single and doesn't have children, they don't have family responsibilities, they do. And it makes it hard to do transfers and to be constantly traveling and to maybe work long hours. And while we do see men taking on much more responsibility, particularly if you take a look at the young men that are coming through, they too are questioning the sacrifices that need to be made. It does seem to be shifting. I also work with women who have stay-at-home husbands. Yes. They're not as common. They do Uh, exist. Absolutely. So again, it's not a black and white, Mm -hmm. and there's some shifting grounds around aspirations. Mm -hmm. But just to say, you know, if we take a look at why do people aspire to be leaders, there's a lot going on Mm -hmm. behind that. It sounds like as young girls, we may have a different perception of what leadership looks like. And the trade-offs may still not be worth the cost again. Right. But it is a way to, to be able to make a difference. And that's often one of the things that, that inspires someone to be a leader. Like uh, the stories of some of the women in Africa mm-hmm. in some of the small villages who have made massive changes, they very seldom saw themselves as leaders before they got into the fact that they desperately needed water. We as a country, I think in the U.S., and I know Europe is doing it, looking at how to get women on boards. Tech industry in the U.S. is badly represented. Right. So what causes this? Well, I think it goes back to some of what we were talking about around aspirations, but also around the structural. We're we're all socialized the same way. Mm -hmm. Men and women, uh, we have certain values within our our Mm -hmm. culture. And this aspect of leading is very much tied to still this idea of a single person who is uh, the one that makes all of the decisions, Mm -hmm. who is the one who gives the direction and... Embedded in that is one making these decisions, as opposed to someone who is there to facilitate, to be relational, to be communal, which is more the gender role that we have for women. So if we take a look at that, that is, we do have the uh, white males are predominantly in uh, the CEO roles, but also Mm -hmm. chairs of boards. Mm -hmm. That is what you'll still see. So we have this very deeply embedded in our structure what it means to be a leader. And women and minorities don't fit that picture. But it's not, and it's so it's our own picture of ourselves and perhaps the training we've done. It's also the way the decisions are made as to who will be on the the Mm -hmm. boards. So it's also uh, an awful lot of, first in the U.S., there's very low board turnover because of the lack of term limits on boards, which many other countries have term limits for boards. So that means almost the only way you can grow the number of women on boards rapidly is to add, to increase the size of the board, which is obviously a challenge. Another one is the tendency to um, recruit for boards someone you already know and trust. Mm -hmm. And that someone you know and trust is often someone who looks a lot like you. The woman who is known personally is trusted and makes sense to add to your board. But when you look at some woman who's been suggested Mm -hmm. as having all the qualifications, well, will she really fit? Yeah, I'm just thinking of someone I recently nominated for a board who was accepted and she'll be fabulous. But how do we enter those settings where we don't already have the contacts? So many board members are also senior leaders in their own organizations, Mm -hmm. they're CEOs. And so Mm -hmm. that number is fewer to begin with. So women aren't getting some of the experiences that are typically looked for. 
on a board as well. So you'll hear well. You'll hear well. There's no one qualified. I hear that, and that doesn't pass the logic test for me. Mm-hmm. But is mm-hmm. help me with the data. Well, it's it's the fact that that um, most people on boards have been CEOs historically. Mm-hmm. And there's some question as to whether that makes much sense in this changing world, where having a whole variety of expertise mm-hmm. um, on your board has a lot of value. And so might it be good to have someone who might understand your consumers? Cyber security, legal. Mm-hmm. There's so many places that women could come from mm-hmm. that might not have been CEOs already. Right. Who, but and those women that could add a whole lot to your board, too. Okay. And typically, um, your s- most common senior mm-hmm. executive would be in the HR functions. Will be um, women. Okay. So there, you know, and that's of some value on a board as well. Okay. So, but but typically that I'm not saying that women aren't qualified, but there will be fewer people, fewer women that fit the profile. Okay. Of what is typically looked for in a board right. member. And what I hear you saying then is, as the profile changes, we have more options for women. Mid. Yes. Okay. Yes. Tell us where we stand now across different countries. So what are those numbers looking like? Well, it's hard to know exactly how to compare countries because countries mm-hmm. call different things their boards. Mm-hmm. For example, in most of Europe, there's two levels of boards. Okay. And so um, it's a question a bit of which board is being measured, whether it's the the board that deals with strategy or the board that deals with running the company. Okay. Um, as opposed to the U.S., where there's only a single board that okay. does include both kinds of folks on it. Okay. The United States is well down in the list and trending a little more slowly in this growth than some okay. of the others. Okay. At this point, countries such as Norway have exceeded the 40% um, women on boards of legislated um, goals. Other countries are really close behind. France is catching up really fast. Italy is doing really well. Surprisingly, Kenya is doing reasonably well in Africa. And the United States has just passed 20% for the um, women on Fortune 1000 um, boards, as noted by Women on Boards 2020 in their latest data. Okay. They've been tracking it, and they've passed their 20% of Fortune 1000. So that number is very different than I hear on the radio periodically about Fortune 500. That looks like it's a really small number. So just pointing that out, as, as many of us don't, like me paying partial attention while I'm driving to work. And so we're talking about multiple data sets. Right. There. That's, that is okay. one of the really big challenges. It depends okay. on what you look at. If you look at smaller companies, the numbers are worse. Okay. Normally. Okay. Right now in California, and I, I know I'm talking a little U.S.-centric at this moment, we now have quotas. There were quotas in Norway, right, or targets. Uh, how do those work? Well, is that effective? It's, it's not always the same. The ones that are the most effective are actually, they're penalties, huge penalties okay. for not meeting the targets. Okay. So it's really important that they meld with the culture. Do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, the culture article? Because you spent a lot of time with that one. Sure. So one of the things that we found is that just having a quota may not be effective. Okay. If there isn't some kind of consequence for not meeting the quota. So that quota can be that you can't exist if you don't have women on your board, a certain number of women on your board. Um, Germany is quite strict. Uh, We have quotas that are 
fines. So where it's a fine, well, some companies decide, well, it's worth the fine. Okay. Business as usual will pay the fine. But if it means that your qualification to continue to be a business, to be, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that might make a very difference. So they, it's not just the quota and what the percentage of the quota is. It's also what the consequences of not meeting mm-hmm. that quota. But if you take a look at the countries that began having quotas, mm-hmm. they're much more socialist okay. than countries like the U.S. And, right? and so, so mandating you, is going to have a different impact. So in Norway, it is very different. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, already a much more egalitarian society as well in terms of men taking on roles, maternity leaves, parental leaves. These are all structures in their fabric of their society. They've already been passed. So you have this uh, very different kind of a culture mm-hmm. uh, that is much... homogeneous culture. Yes, changing a bit, but in the past has been much more homogeneous in terms of race, I think you're referring to. No, socioeconomic. I mean, well, and that has to do... Categories, yeah. races, so it has, everyone has the same kind of background. Yeah. I mean, they didn't, mm-hmm. they're not a melting pot. They haven't historically been a melting pot. And so you have... Government plays a very different role mm-hmm. uh, than it does in the U.S., for example, in a socialist country. And so you have something that's very much more compliant and makes sense. It's progressing along, continue to be equality. If you have um, a country that has much more, is much more individualistic and much more you know, hands-off for government, that government's there to set some uh, laws in place, and to set the framework for business to be successful. Mm -hmm. That's a very different environment. And we know that from some of the um, European countries that we, uh, that contributed to our book, for example, that there was a backlash, right? So you might have a token woman. Okay, so this is backlash, is the tokenism issue. But they're not really integrated. They're not really listened to. They're not being effective. They're not... They're there, are they token? Are they picking the most qualified people? There definitely are some women, they're referred to as golden skirts, which I think are kind of fun, Hmm. who are on a whole slew of the boards in the country, South Norway, and this tribe that has to put the 40%. Another thing that was found that I thought was kind of interesting, that some companies had more than 40% or whatever the goal target was, Mm -hmm. and in some countries they're actually... They, some of the companies had fewer women afterwards because they that there was no need to go beyond the quota. And there's also been some repercussions in the number of women in senior management. When it happens um, organically, there's a lot of studies that show more women on boards means more women will be in the senior mm-hmm. roles. Mm-hmm. But there's been some, uh, some of the, in some of the quota places, the number of women in senior roles went down when the number of women on the board Wait, so there's there's all sorts of unintended consequences that that vary from country to country. We had one chapter that I thought was really fascinating that was done out of Spain. The researcher was from Spain. It looked at all the cultural variations and the impact of culture, and it was it was fascinating how you can't just take the laws or the situation from one country and plug it into another right. to just mimic them in the sense. Mm-hmm. So, um, sort of benchmarking or taking a back practice and, and putting in, just sticking it somewhere else. It doesn't necessarily work in a different culture. 
So there are a number of one of the strategies that has also worked besides quota are actual um, organizations, agencies that recruit and train women. Okay. And then are the go-to in terms of board saying, okay, well, we want a woman. We don't know. We may have someone. We would like to, but we don't know within our circle somebody that mm-hmm. we think is really mm-hmm. qualified. And so you have these uh, different agencies. In Europe, in the U.S., there's many of them okay. that have been developed to identify potential women that are interested in being mm-hmm. boards and ensuring that they have the background and the understanding and have the skill set mm-hmm. to be effective. So that's another totally different strategy um, that has been quite effective. I do think, it just back to California for a minute, it is interesting if you take a look at the U.S. that it would be California that would have a quota, <laughs> right? Because it is already more progressive around maternity leaves, parental leaves, uh, different aspects, different mm-hmm. social policies that they have. It is more progressive than other states. And so it, it is interesting that it would be in California. But it also has Silicon Valley where the statistics yeah. are the worst. Yeah. So it will yeah. be interesting to see yeah, how it actually would happen. Yeah, very interesting. But uh, so I was just wanted to plug that yeah. in. You know, it, yeah. is, it, it needs to... You can't take a strategy that works in one place mm-hmm. and just say, well, it worked there. Let's do it here. That It's much too simplistic. It's really understanding where is your populace at and looking at policy changes mm-hmm. and developing that. And this strategy of really looking at working with boards uh, to identify and ensuring that there are women that are well qualified. So it does sound like some... Something is required, whether it's a clearinghouse or something to, because I do know a lot of women who are highly competent, have been in C-level roles in, in large, organ, large complex organizations. And it, it seems like board seats are still secured through networks. Mm-hmm. We're called upon, and it's the same way we move around as executives anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's... Mm-hmm. Do I know and trust this person? Because mm-hmm. at that level, everyone's resume looks good, and they all have some missteps. But do I trust you? Do you fit? Yeah, some of the statistics are interesting to do with whether or not executive search firms are used. Mm-hmm. They're almost never necessary, apparently, when it's a man. But the mm-hmm. women, but the percentages are higher of the women who join boards because of having been hooked up by the executive search firm. Another one is in the programs that such as the ones Marlene was talking about, a lot of them include a placement option, I mean, a placement step in it. And a lot of them have coaches or mentors or mm-hmm. someone who is an experienced board member who the woman is paired with, who okay. could be an, another woman, it could be a man, whose role is to help them mm-hmm. find that first position. It does seem, though, doing nothing, the stats aren't going up very quickly. So it's, it's not shocking that doing nothing isn't making mm-hmm. a big impact. So if you were to recommend a few steps, we've, I think we've hit on them it's through the conversation, but can we give a list of two or three things an organization might consider if they want to raise the number of women on their boards or, or a state? or I'd say once, once an organization decided they wanted to raise the, women on, the number of women on boards, they probably wouldn't have a very hard time doing it. Okay. So I think that the challenge is to get to the stage where the organization decides it wants to. Okay. Because I still hear, and this is for women, there just aren't enough qualified women. 
And that doesn't... That depends on how you define qualified. Remember the discussion we had before about if a, if qualified means has been a CEO of another company that's as big as we are. Uh-huh. Um, the fact that there aren't very many women CEOs means there aren't any women qualified. Okay. So you have to um, actually think about what skills do you really need on your board. And is it really a bunch of retired or others or CEOs? From, yeah. Or might it be good to have some of the expertises that, are, that maybe are lacking? that are important in today's global society. And although we can't say all women mm-hmm. are interested in the same issues, we do know that when, in general, we take a look at having at least three women on a board to be able to uh, make an impact, it okay. seems to be, you know, the voice needs to, can't be a single voice. So for mm-hmm. organizations, it'd be, take it seriously mm-hmm. about not just having one token voice, but really looking at additional diversity. And then some of the other issues, what we know from the research is the topics of what get discussed changes when there are women on boards, employee concerns, sustainability, whether that is social sustainability or whether it's environmental sustainability tends to also be to the fore. So the Mm -hmm. topics end up being a little bit differently rather than meeting the quarterly financial imperative, which mm-hmm. it still has to happen. Yeah. I mean, this is not, I'm not dismissing it. It still has to happen. But the direct route, the indirect route through employee engagement, through mm-hmm. employees being interested in the work and being wanting to work for the company that indirectly then contributes to the bottom mm-hmm. line mm-hmm. Uh, of the future in terms of uh, your sustainability and not being caught in a violation of environmental laws. These things tend to be, we know from the research, tend to be discussed more when there are more women on the boards. Yeah, I was just going to give an interesting example I thought was interesting. A woman who I interviewed um, to do with women on boards was talking about, I wanted to convey that it's not, that they might sound like the soft issues, but they're not really. Mm -hmm. Um, She was talking about how um, at the time of a merger or acquisition, um, the assumption was made that everybody would move to the new location because the people were the asset. And as they were going through this discussion, there was this, wait a minute, you know, we're going to, that's, that's just not going to happen. What are we going to have? What are we going to do that's going to begin to make them want to do that? Mm-hmm. And I believe it was decided to ignore that and very few of them moved. So, so that, that bringing up those people issues Mm-hmm. That, are, that are sometimes the soft issues, mm-hmm. but are really important. Okay, so people's sustainability, employee engagement, customer satisfaction, those types of issues. Uh, community engagement as well, being in the community. And I think a lot of organizations have understood that they exist within a community mm-hmm. and um, that, that it's really important to be in the community, whether they have a special arm that mm-hmm. does, you know, donate money for education, for mm-hmm. kids' education, school programs, whatever they decide. But it's really looking at engaging with the community that they're in and benefiting that way. So as we close this segment, you keep referencing your book, but we didn't talk about it in the intro. What is the name of your book? More Women on Boards, okay. An International Perspective. It's a pretty serious book. There's 42 authors from all over the world. Night of the Men, which we, were, we thought was pretty important, because we talk about women in leadership really not being just a women's issue. And, uh, yeah, we and men are important um, to making changes happen. Right. 
I would expect it would be on Amazon and just about anywhere at any minute. It is my, I haven't received my copy yet. So it's that close. It's in the mail. It's really new. When a woman behaves the same way a man does, it is often perceived differently. And I know we talk about this, but I don't have any data. I would love to hear what the research actually says. Sure, there's actually quite a bit. And, you know, the range of topics is uh, this understanding or perception that women talk a lot. Mm -hmm. And we know that actually some really great research by uh, Brasco back in 2011 looked at politicians, for example. Mm -hmm. the, the U.S., every word is recorded. And so you can actually do a count okay. or take a look at how much do women speak, how much do men speak. And it's actually not true. Men do speak more than women. But we have a background and we've got lots of uh, history in terms of when women speak in a public uh, it. It's not acceptable. We're, we're to be quiet. And so it's this historical cultural norm okay, uh, for women to listen. And we have a funny little good uh, housekeeping 1955 article that is fun if any of you want to look it up uh, around how a woman should greet her husband when he comes home and the importance of listening. And we have that back again. Women are not to be taking, given, giving the direction culturally Women are there to listen, to smooth over. Uh, and so there is this perception when we speak that we're speaking too much compared to what the cultural norm should be mm -hmm. and our gendered expectations. But we know from that also that more powerful people are allowed more space to speak. And so in this particular study, even when they control through objective measures, not every politician is as powerful as the next. So if you mm -hmm. control for that, even the most powerful women in the legislature do not speak as much as the men do. So what is considered to be a norm around just the volume of speech, not what you're talking about, being allowed to speak. We also have then, why is that? Well, women are interrupted when they speak. More than men are. More than men are. Yes. So whether that is in the legislature or there's a a nice little study that was done at Donahue in 2015 and Snyder in 2014 in the tech industry and taking a look at the senior leadership table and actually measuring the amount of interruptions and who interrupted whom. And even junior men didn't get interrupted the way senior, senior women, women were. Okay. So this is a very common, uh, I could give other examples, but I'm not going to get into the political arenas, but it mm -hmm. is absolutely, you take a look and it's been well on the news where women are uh, regularly interrupted and the men are given the space to finish their thoughts. One of the things that that, that reminds me of is the whole topic of when women speak, are they even hurt? And the need to almost have um, power and recognition before anyone even hears your voice. So the woman will make a suggestion and a few minutes later, a man makes the exact same suggestion and now it's finally heard. Um, and I, I think that's sort of the classic story of how in the Obama administration, in the cabinet, the women decided that in order to make sure the other women's voices were heard and their own voices were heard, that when one of them said something, the other would immediately reinforce it so that it would be constant, so that the person who had the idea or who brought up the topic was actually recognized for having so it doesn't it. have to be a man's voice that restates it. It just has it, to be a voice. Right. And But historically, it was a man who who would, it, it would be like it wasn't heard at all. And then later on, somebody would, it would be a new thought when this person who had been, who had actually heard it and was mulling it now suggests mm -hmm. 
So and taking a, credit. And taking and credit. credit for the And so now, as opposed to letting that happen, when mm-hmm. when it's not a bad idea to learn from that other from the experience. And so when mm-hmm. you hear another woman make a comment, reinforce it immediately and give her credit for it before mm-hmm. somebody else has the opportunity to do so. That's actually a strategy that I think um, it was called amplification is what the staff in the Obama administration uh, talked about mm-hmm. and uh, gave it a name. And it is something that uh, some of us have been doing for a number of years is actually when a woman gets interrupted is to interrupt the man right back and say, because I'm more of a senior woman, say, Amanda, I really wanted, excuse me, but Amanda, I really wanted to hear what you were talking about. Could you please continue? And so there are some strategies that women can help each other or men can as well, because we often have. And just back to the idea of taking credit for somebody else's idea, it's not even deliberate. It is at an unconscious level that we simply have when a woman's interest introducing an idea, mm-hmm. culturally, we tend to ignore it. it as we do it to each same, other as well. Ha- yes, it doesn't have the same credibility. Mm-hmm. And so when it is then, you know, it's mulling around in people's brains because mm-hmm. they have heard it, they haven't given credit to it, it hasn't been validated, uh, it's not a credible idea until someone else more powerful, like a male, may say it. So I'm not, you know, just to be really clear that this is not a deliberate, let's put women down, it is just embedded in our culture mm-hmm. around women's voices. There's other aspects, things like the expression of anger. So we know from some really great research that started uh, you know, back in 2008, Breskel and Ullman, that actually measured the impact that the expression of anger would have. So at, for a man, the more status you have, when you express anger, it actually increases your status. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're the junior guy, no, no, pounding and screaming. no, you can't be doing that. It'll decrease your mm-hmm. status. The, absolutely not. But as power increases for men, their status, their expression of anger, their status actually goes up. Okay. For women, that is not the case. And in fact, women continue to be seen as being emotional when mm-hmm. they express anger, as opposed to why does a, a, a powerful man, when he's anger, well, because he has credibility. And obviously he's angry because the situation is wrong. Men are, it's the external mm-hmm. and all power to him that he is calling it out and he's mm-hmm. angry and that things are going to change. He, it actually, he's asserting an angry, powerful man is asserting his rights. So, and so status goes up. For women, you don't have that luxury. And so when you're angry, your status actually goes down and you're seen as being emotional and therefore not a good leader because you can't control yourself. What is the strategy? And this is very real for me because I I work with senior women. Mm-hmm. Often I work with them because they're seen as not as leaderly or either not warm enough and mm-hmm. not nurturing enough, which is, again, the double things blind. culturally yeah. were yeah. assigned. Yeah. And the same people who are not warm happen to be passionate about their work, so they do get angry. What would you advise someone who's incredibly competent, has earned her way to a senior level role Yeah, that, yeah. that she wants yeah. to be credited? So we know from the research, the only strategy that seems to be effective is to make it very clear what in the situation is wrong. Okay. And then stating rather than flying off and being uh-huh. angry visibly and all the rest of it is actually using the words. 
describing the situation, and this makes me really angry. But not showing the anger. Well, you can. Okay. But you have to first describe that. The whole oh, scenario. Okay. What is wrong? It needs to be very clear that the anger is tied to the inequality to something that's mm -hmm. out there that is simply wrong and usually more related to not somebody's incompetence. Yes, you can point that out, uh, but we get into problems with relational aspects that we're still supposed to be supportive and trying to help the person that's done something wrong. But being very clear about what about the environment is either unjust, whether uh, in equality, in equity, or that was an agreement. So my anger in the past in a very senior position would be when we've had an agreement mm -hmm. and the agreement has been broken. And so what you do is saying, this was my understanding of the agreement. Is that what you understood as well? And you then know, to make sure and then say, but you just did this. How do those two relate? So instead of saying, I'm angry because you didn't do it, it's, yes, so it's walking to the logic. logic. Yeah, walking okay. through and, and making it very clear that it's in the environment and in the context. It is not something, I'm having a bad day, I've got my, you know, I'm hormonal, all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. The assumption that's made that is very clear and it's justified in the situation when there was an agreement and that trust has been broken. Thank you. That's very helpful. One of the other things I hear is about women taking credit. So I'm I'm doing a good job and the work should stand for itself. Mm -hmm. Is there research on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot there's lots of research on the challenge of promoting yourself. So can you share with us some of what that looks like? So uh, one of the really in, so a really interesting study that was done and in a case study where business students were given, uh, the class was divided in half. Mm -hmm. And the case that was given was exactly the same, except for the name Howard in one case, the name Heidi in the other case. Mm -hmm. And then the students were asked, would you hire this person? You know, it was a case, you're the CEO, would you hire this person in, in your role? And the students, both males and females, that had the Howard case said, yeah, sure, very competent, you know, mm -hmm. and the description and the students then that had the Heidi case said, no, she's really full of herself. You know, yeah. she's, uh, she's out for herself. She's not going to be a team player. The case elements were exactly the same. And what it was is that we know for men to be into leadership positions, they do need to promote themselves. Okay. And for women, when they promote themselves, they're seen as being, we're not fitting the ideal. So it needs to be this balancing act for women. We, you do need to promote yourself. Right, okay. Right, what yeah, you need yeah, to do, yeah. but better yet, if you get somebody so, else, have a deliberate conversation with someone else that's mm -hmm. that can do the promoting for you. And if it's a powerful male that can do the promoting, that's even the best. Yeah, that it's whole really idea of allies is really important. Okay. So, so who so can help you through some of these things that aren't socially acceptable. If you're a woman, someone mm -hmm. who can help reinforce that that was more acceptable. Okay, so so we're on a team together, and I have the more powerful man say... Or powerful woman, but don't okay. avoid men. Okay. I'm yeah. just saying, you know, it doesn't need mm -hmm. to just be other women, but somebody who believes in you, that they need to be vocal mm -hmm. in promoting you. And uh, pointing out what you've contributed and how much you've done. And So we just finished this big project. Instead of saying, I did, 
he would say, he, I'm thinking of a specific yeah. case, we pushed this across the finish line and thanks to right. Sue. Yeah. So he was the lead. Yeah. As, so the woman because has, she really led this huge portion of it without without her leadership, it wouldn't have happened. So the lead, you as the senior woman who's leading this mm-hmm. uh, team would uh, give credit to your whole team. Mm-hmm. Really important that women have to give credit to everyone okay. else. And then your boss says, wouldn't have gone it through the finish line without your leadership. But that's, you know, the best scenario yet. And some of this requires pre-work. Yes, it does. And it, it requires uh, sponsors. Men have sponsors mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Not just mentors, but sponsors who see opportunities and suggest you're the right person for that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so men have that. That is a normal practice. And um, that is what women need as well. So this conversation has been amazing to me. I've been looking for sources of this kind of information. I can't change gender expectations single-handedly, but I can certainly work within them to increase my effectiveness. And as competent humans, not just women or men, but competent humans, we need all voices right now because our world is complex and we can't take any half of the population out and expect to thrive. Right. So thank you. This has been absolutely insightful. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.